We like to have fun here at Faith. We like to not take ourselves too seriously. But something that we do take very seriously is the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative Word of God. It is His instruction for all things, according to Peter, pertaining to life and godliness. And so we do ourselves a disservice by not investing ourselves, not as a a once-a-week discipline or activity, meaning going to church with the body gathered together, but as a discipline of spending time with the Lord, ideally every day, and endeavoring to work through his word, just in a casual sit-down and reading, spending time with him, so that you go through the Bible annually. It was a discipline that my wife and I were basically, you know, when you're young, and by young I mean young, um, faith-wise, not because we didn't become believers till uh, we were adults. So when I say young in faith, I mean as soon as we gave our lives to Christ, we had people beside us who were discipling us, who were mentoring us. And two things that we kind of had pounded into our heads was memorization of Scripture, to always have it written on your heart, and reading through the Bible in an annual way. And I can tell you that it just, uh, you know, for all the things that people deal with and struggle with and are in search of answers for, a vast majority of them could be found here all on your own. Now, it doesn't mean that everything is easy. I've read through the Bible now, I'm going to guess, maybe 40 times. And I still learn as I read through it, and there's still a whole bunch that I read, and I go, (laughs) yeah, I have no idea. Move along. And at the Lord's time, it'll all become clear. So I endeavor to teach through the Word of God, and we are in, I think, my 32nd book um, since I've been here at Faith now over 26 years. And we are currently in the Gospel of Mark, which we've been in for, as of April, it will be two years. So, uh, yeah, time flies when you're having fun, right? Right? Thank you. Okay, all right. So we're in Mark chapter 12. Well, two weeks ago we were looking at the way that Jesus took control of the duplicitous interrogations that he faced as his enemies always tried to give the appearance, and that's important, they tried to give the appearance of being genuinely interested inquisitors, showing great respect all the while they had one goal in mind, and that was to do nothing other than undermine Jesus' virtue, to undermine his credibility, to undermine his, cred- his uh, growing popularity, and to undermine his attraction to the crowds, if you will. Through the many interchanges that we have seen already in Mark, Jesus seems to be focused on the masses of what I will call the unsuspecting, rather than being focused on his enemies. But as quickly as I say that, we've seen that Jesus certainly doesn't ignore his antagonists, nor does he ever give them a pass. He really doesn't seem to treat them the way that that perhaps you or at least I was, again, raised to think as a Christian and how we're supposed to think and act towards those who blatantly have no interest in the truth and are quick to tell you so. Which means we're back again to the issue of what I've talked about several times over the weeks of the honest doubter, versus the dishonest doubter. The one who asks questions searching for for truth versus the one who asks, asks questions in order to avoid the truth. 
So Jesus is patient for the most part with those asking questions, those who even express contrary viewpoints. But in a manner of their expressing those contrary viewpoints, their hope is that somebody might actually have a better answer than what they have. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 came to mind as I was trying to think of a biblical example of somebody that, that I think fits that bill. But even, I think, more uh, what I have in mind is a searching Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And he's an even stronger example of the honest doubter, of somebody who's looking for answers not to avoid the truth, but to really find out what the truth is. Well, given Nicodemus' status as one of Jesus' enemies, and I mean by association because Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were Jesus' arch enemies. So he's guilty by association, and yet he is drawn by the Holy Spirit as each human being is to find out what is true truth. And so he seeks out Jesus to pelt him with questions about this strange message that Jesus seems to be preaching from what what they were used to. Now Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he comes there again searching for truth. He doesn't come there for the purpose of accusing or for the purpose of setting up some kind of a trap. He was in search of ultimate answers and with respect to his eternal destiny. And Nicodemus is so aware of the dishonest doubters in his own fraternity of the Pharisees, that he goes to Jesus under the cover of night so that his own posse, meaning the rest of the Pharisees, wouldn't find out about it because that wouldn't go over real big. And all that is to say is that, frankly, I expect to see Nicodemus in heaven. If we are privy to such things as that, who knows? There was always bright spots in the bleak, blackness of Satan's rule over the hearts of man. Remember, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in dark places. At a different level now of spiritual honesty is another Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. And he was a renowned Pharisee. We could view him, I guess, in our context, sort of even as a professor of Pharisaism with a very prized student that we all know, perhaps not so much by his original name, which was Saul of Tarsus. Later on, after he meets Jesus, he takes on the name of Paul, the Apostle. Saul of Tarsus, though, before his conversion on the road to Damascus, was public enemy number one of the church of Jesus. He was known for his exuberance for Jehovah. He wasn't a God-hater. He was a God-fearer. He himself, again, being a Pharisee of Pharisees. And because of that, he deemed that this, this whatever this new sect was, this new religion called the Christians or the Christ followers, that they were enemies of God. When one of the early disciples named Stephen was being executed in Acts chapter 7, Luke describes the scene. And as he's describing the scene there of the stoning taking place, 
we happen to find out that the individual that's there overseeing it, not observing merely, but actually overseeing it, is none other than Saul of Tarsus, who has not yet at this point had a face-to-face, so to speak, confrontation with Christ. And as Stephen is taking his last breath, we are told in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and Saul was there in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. This was after now, true, Jesus had been crucified, dead, and raised from the grave, and the disciples now were even more fervent in their proclamation of the truths of who Jesus was. So even after Jesus has been executed, the Pharisees find themselves now still having to strategize as to how to contain this gospel epidemic. And their solution was incarceration or extermination of these ones following the Christ. So as the Pharisees are on the war path against the disciples, another voice of reason from within the party of the deceived, the highly respected Gamaliel, remember Professor Gamaliel, steps forward. In Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 35, this is what we read. Gamaliel is speaking to those who are wanting to exterminate the way of Jesus. Men of Israel, he says, take care what you propose to do with these men. For he wants to remind them that some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and they came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. But he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. Now here's where it gets really interesting. So in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, You will not be able to overthrow them or else you, interestingly, he doesn't say we, because this is his his posse, these are the Pharisees. He says you, not we, may even be found fighting against God. Now because of who Gamaliel was and his prized student, you know that Gamaliel, having raised up Paul, knew what a zealous Pharisee Paul was and how rabid His hatred was for the Christians, believing that he was actually doing God a favor by destroying them. Does that ring a bell today with any global situation concerning destruction of any and all who do not go by the faith of Islam? There's nothing new under the sun, even as Solomon tells us. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Again, to repeat verse 1 of Acts 8. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. All right, so let's go back now to Mark. Jesus hasn't been crucified, didn't go on, so Jesus is still with us. And we know only because we have the advantage of hindsight that getting rid of Jesus was not the answer to the Pharisees retaining power and control. 
They really, really should heed the counsel of Gamaliel in the months ahead. But they don't. Well, Jesus once again shuts down the dishonest doubters as he does over and over. In this case, the scribes and the chief priests and the elders, Mark tells us earlier, who who are after Jesus hide. And yet, as shut down as they get and humiliated as they get publicly, they nonetheless return again and again. And remember what I said, too, two weeks ago, that Satan is relentless. He is unbending, he is resolute, and he is unswerving. When he gets shut down, one day he will be back sooner and usually than later. And I issue that as a warning, especially to people who are making new resolves in their life to, be, to get perhaps even more serious with Christ, or if you're a young Christian, and again, I don't necessarily mean by age, but by your time in the faith, because Satan has a vested interest in coming and working against you. And as soon as you win, don't take too many deep breaths and relax because he's coming again. But don't fear that either because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are more than conquerors through Christ who saves us. Well, the last time that we were together in this passage, Satan got body slammed on what we figure was probably Tuesday of Passion Week. And here we are now and it's Wednesday morning, possibly. Verse 12, verses 13 and 14 of Mark 12. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. That's a name we haven't heard since back a ways. They sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus in order to trap him. Here we go again in another statement. And so they came to him and they said, oh my goodness. No, they didn't say, oh my goodness. But I read this and they are, oh, they are so obvious that they're nauseating. Listen, so here they come, and Jesus knows full well who they are. And what do they go? Hey, Jesus, we got a question. No, that's not how they come. They come and they say to him, oh, teacher, hmm. oh, we know that you are truthful and that you defer to no one. You are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God and truth. You know, he's saying, no, no, no. Yeah, go ahead. Keep coming. Keep coming. So we have a question that's been plaguing us all. And we know that you will have the answer, no matter how difficult that answer might be. They're counting on it because it's a trap. Here comes their question. So Jesus, great teacher, truthful one, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or not pay? Well, among the Jewish masses now, there were three, actually many more, but three three big, if you will, very disparate groups of Jews. All Jews, all followers of Judaism, all faithful in their own way, but three groups having three very different convictions on various things. We know plenty about the first group called the Pharisees because we keep running into them in the Gospel of Mark here. And we know their hatred of the Romans and their resentment for the fact that they were under Roman rule. They didn't enjoy paying what was called the poll tax or the mandated tribute tax, but it wasn't that they minded it so much because of the the financial repercussions that it was a tax itself, but rather because it was a constant rubbing of their noses in the fact that they, in fact, were under Roman authority. That's what galled them. 
But as far as the tax, eh, they just went ahead and paid it. But then you had another group called the Zealots. And the Zealots, this may not be fair, but I, in my mind, I kind of liken them to maybe some of the very militant survivalist groups of our day, you know, who have a thing with the IRS, (laughs) who doesn't have a thing with the IRS. But they refuse to pay their taxes, right? Yeah, taxes, we don't need no stinking taxes. And by the way, is a crass illusion takeoff on a famous line from the treasure of the Sierra Madres. Nobody ever knows where it's from, and it's an old Humphrey Bogart movie where they say, badges, we don't need no, if i got to explain it, forget it. All right. And then there's a third group called the Herodians. And again, they, they were first mentioned back in chapter 3. Now, the Herodians, they were kind of, they were kind of the go-along, get-along uh, types of Jews who didn't really care one way or another. They didn't seem to get too worked up about anything. They were just interested in keeping the peace. Now, understand that because of that, too, the Herodians and the Pharisees couldn't stand each other. Oh, but evil makes for some very strange bedfellows. So, do the Herodians really give a flying fig about the poll tax? Not really. But here they are, inquiring, pretending with the Pharisees to just, we just want to do the right thing. But we know that it's another trap. And so does Jesus. So in verse 15, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, says to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. That would be one of the coins of the day. They brought one, and Jesus said to them, So, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And so Jesus said to them, Well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, that's not the kind of amaze that's like, Wow, I'm in awe of you. It's the kind of amaze that, How does he keep doing that? We set up these traps, we get them into a corner, and somehow he makes us look ridiculous. It's that kind of amazed. So it's another trap which snaps on their own fingers. I don't know about you, I still use the old-fashioned mouse traps, right? The little, and now they've got the little stupid plastic fake-looking cheese thing on it. I go ahead and put peanut butter on there anyway. My favorite thing to do, not is to be setting there and, and setting the trap and getting it, and then, you know, that place where you got to go real delicately, to, and then, clap! Ah, man! And when it catches you right on the nail, isn't that joyous? Anyway, I just, that's, they keep getting their finger in that mouse trap. So anyway, now, there is a brief uh, time period that seems to go by, and what comes next? is reasonably somewhat of a change, not a wholesale change, but a change at least in the makeup of the crowds somewhat. Beginning in verse 18, we're introduced to yet another group, the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection. And they came to Jesus, and they began questioning him, saying, "Uh, Teacher, (coughs) teacher, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, that his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. 
Oh, then the second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven brothers ended up marrying her and all dying without children. I'll tell you, that's one gene line you don't want to be in, okay? Last of all, the woman died also. Now, here comes their question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Let me go back to something I said either last week or the week before, or both. Know your enemy. The Sadducees didn't believe in the idea of resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, usually I get a good from the kindergarten first graders. That's about it. It's all right. There was about 45 second delay this morning and somebody else got it. Oh! Anyway, sorry about that. The, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And if the reader didn't know this, we are told it in Mark's account to make sure that we do know it. Why? Because it's an important condition to the story. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. Namely, the Sadducees are not interested in the answer to their question. They don't believe in a resurrection. Now, to their credit, little little bit of a just a little side jaunt here. The reason they didn't believe in the resurrection is because they only believed in the written Holy Scriptures the Bible for them, and especially the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, So if it wasn't, show me where it's written, they didn't believe it, as opposed to the Pharisees now, on the other hand, who they had a, a, a very high authority regard for the oral tradition, which means whether it was written in the Scriptures or not, if one of their scholars throughout the ages pontificated on something and said, no, this is what it means and this is what it is, that was as authoritative to them as the Scriptures, but not so with the Pharisees. So that was a good thing. But the Sadducees were mistaken to think that the resurrection is not taught in their sacred writings in the Old Testament, for it certainly is, and in many places. So here they are asking Jesus, not just about resurrection, which they don't believe in anyway, but they make up this utterly asinine hypothetical based on the Judaistic provision for a widow who is childless called leverate marriage. And what the law stipulated was that if a woman dies without a child and she had a brother-in-law, the brother-in-law was legally obligated to marry her for the purpose of giving her children so that the inheritance that his brother and her original husband uh, had would not just kind of go out of existence or go to somebody else. And if that brother died... Okay, I mean the unlikelihood of that, but who knows. Then if there was another brother-in-law, they were obligated to marry. So they throw out this totally made-up story about there was this woman who had seven brothers to marry and each one of them died. Now, golly, shucks and by gee. When they get to heaven, which they don't believe in because they don't believe in a resurrection, who's she going to be married to? Boy, they stumped Jesus, didn't they? Well... It's such an absurd 
hypothetical, that what it does is it reveals their heart in the matter. And like the Pharisees, again, they have no interest in the answer. But it's meant to make Jesus look silly, while at the same time, I suppose, giving them some sense of justification for their own disbelief in a resurrection, trying to show how foolish the notion really even is. If I were to liken this, and I I always try to contextualize things to my life and our lives, if I were trying to liken the situation that I've run into with someone who claims no belief in God whatsoever, I have had the always fun experience about a half a dozen times of somebody posing what they apparently have determined is the real gotcha question for the Christian. The one that's going to stump them. And they're going to walk away like, boy, I made a fool of them. <laughs> and what is that question? There's various iterations of it and takes on it, but it's all basically the same thing. Are you ready for it? Well, then you tell me, Mr. God Believer. If God can do anything, and that's where it really takes on different stripes, can he make a rock that he can't move? <gasps> oh, horrors of death. You've got me. God, if God can do anything. I just told, was talking and I told him God can do anything. Well, can he make a rock he can't move? Oh, no. How am I going to answer this? Okay, first of all, this little riddle, if you will, is akin to asking, can God's infinite power overwhelm God's infinite power? Or it's like asking, <laughs> can God beat himself in a fist fight? Or can God think up a mathematical equation that is too difficult for him to solve? It is utter nonsense. And the late great mind of C.S. Lewis once said, Nonsense is still nonsense even when we speak it about God. So you're basically asking by that dumb question if a being of unlimited power can produce something to limit him. But his unlimited power, by definition, rules out that possibility. An unlimited being cannot, cannot create limits for himself. So just if you're interested, okay, I don't answer so brightly. I'm just kind of a down-to-earth kind of person. I usually have two default modes to fall into. One's if I'm in a pretty good mood. One is if I'm cranky. If I'm in an okay mood and I'm feeling patient and I'm like, oh, for Pete's sake, here we go. I might say something to them like, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know what? God can make a rock that he can't move. And before they can say something, I go, right up until the time he decides to move it. Okay? The second one, though, if I'm cranky, is something along the lines of this. Boy, golly, that's a stumper. So I'll tell you what you do, though. When you are standing at the final judgment before the non-existent God, right before he consigns you to a Christless eternity, you ask him that question. Ouch. Yeah. That, by the way, is not being mean. It is applying Solomon's wisdom in Proverbs 26.5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And worse still, if there's other people around listening, lest they think he is wise and he starts leading them down the path of destruction. Nevertheless, the Sadducees question, disingenuous as it is, it's out there in the public. 
So again, they are the dishonest doubters, but you've got all kinds of honest doubters who are there waiting and listening for an answer. So Jesus says, Is this not the reason that you are mistaken? Remember the question was, So, whose wife is she in the resurrection? He says, Isn't this the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures, which they prided themselves in, or the power of God? Ow! They were wrong on two counts. First, while they prided themselves in, show me where it is written, which is a good quality, Jesus says, experts though you think you are, you're ignorant about that which is written. For the Old Testament most certainly does teach resurrection. There are many, many examples. One that comes to mind is when Samuel had died, the prophet, He had died. He was dead. He was gone. And you might remember the story, and Saul goes, which was a capital offense, goes to a medium to have her conjure up the spirit of Saul, which, to her shock, she is able to do. Why? Because this was a God thing. And so there is Samuel, who is long dead, and he actually comes back and has a little conversation with Saul. There are at least 60-plus References in the Psalms along the lines of, in various versions of, God will not abandon me to Sheol. Sheol was the place of the dead. Getting more pointedly in Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You will lie in the dust and awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. And then, of course, there's the potent testimony of the book of Job chapter 19 verse 25 as for me I know Old Testament I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth even after my skin is destroyed yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see Jesus tells them, you don't know the Bible as well as you think you do. Neither do you have much conception of just how powerful the limitless power of God is. And he proceeds to lecture them on their pathetic theology. Remember the question is about the widow married seven times. For when they rise from the dead, Jesus now is going to attack them on their theology and their disingenuousness all combined in one. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So they made a lot of presumptions here about things they don't know or believe in anyway. They They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Okay, stop, stop. Okay, this is a personal thing. This is a please. If you wear the name of Christ, and I honestly, I still hear this kind of thing alluded to or said overtly by Christians who've been Christians for many years and who I know know better if they stop to think about it. But you and me and every other human being ever born when we die, wherever we go, whatever our eternal state is, we will never be angels. Okay? Angels are distinctly, separately created individuals, creatures, called the cherubim and the seraphim, two different kinds of angels. And yes, they have wings. You and I will never have wings. I'm sorry to disappoint you, and I'm sorry to Clarence. No matter how many bells ring, 
We're not going to get our wings. Okay. Thank you. I needed that. I feel better. And then Jesus takes them to the woodshed of biblical doctrine. Verse 24. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read? Oh, now he's getting dirty. Remember? Oh, they know the scriptures. And unless it's written in the scriptures, we don't believe it. That's why we don't believe in resurrection. And they already themselves cited back to Moses, right? So Jesus says, have you not read in the book of Moses, clearing his throat, I imagine, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him? And what did God say to Moses? He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long been dead now by this time when God is speaking to Moses. So God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He does not say, I was Or I used to be the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, but they died and they're gone, and that's it. He adds, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are not just mistaken, you are greatly mistaken. This is a WWF heavyweight smackdown big time. Let me leave us with this. Christians are being globally assaulted in every way, shape, and form. And fortunately, in this country, yet for rare exceptions, our assaults come in the form of insults and labeling and accusations and, and, and rejections of us and you know, cleavage of relationships and all. But more and more, we expect that from they, them, and those More and more, it is starting to come from within the church, using that in the broadest sense, that where's the name of Christ? It is starting to come from the church against the church. And I take it you understand what I'm talking about with what would be called liberal theology, liberal theologians, liberal mainstream denominations that have accepted just about every every conviction, every uh, uh, truth that there is in Scripture, and look down on people who still hold them and and ex- insist that they are still valid. It's a very dangerous position to be in. Many people today, many Christians, have created for themselves a fantasy Jesus, not the Jesus of the scriptures. And I tell you this, that where pastors and preachers and teachers and ignorant Christian celebrities are responsible for fueling the divide in the Christian culture, pitting Christ followers again against fantasy Jesus followers, the judgment will be certain. That's why James writes in chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Today we hear a lot about being respectful of others, of other views. You even hear Christians accusing other Christians that still maintain biblical truth of being judgmental. All we have to do is look to Jesus to see how and in what ways and with whom Jesus didn't hesitate to be one, in the world's definition, disrespectful and certainly judgmental.
Think about all the things that he has said just in the course of Mark to the chief scribes, the priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and some of the other gospels of the things that Jesus called the religious leaders of the day. And that is exactly why Jesus had to be removed. Let us not forget that Jesus was not executed because he was such a gosh darn nice guy. He was executed by public acclamation for calling sin, sin, and saying there is one truth and not all truths are equal. And it's not your truth is good and my truth is good. It is I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Wow, you talk about a judgmental statement. Yeah, you've got to deal with it. He's God incarnate. Finally, from John, chapter 15, speaking to those who are not fantasy followers, Jesus followers, but real Christ followers. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember that the word that I said to you, that a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And all these things they will do to you, thinking that it's for my namesake, because they do not know the one who sent me. They do not know the one who sent me. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many good things in your name and did we not cast out demons in your name? Behold, on that day I will say to them, depart from me, you doers of iniquity. I never knew you. If they believe Jesus... They will believe a Christ follower when he comes and says, look, you know what? You've been walking with the Lord supposedly for how many years and you are embracing all manner of godlessness and you yourself are in fact living in open rebellion in your sexual relationship. You are judgmental. You're one of those judgmental Christians. This actually happened this past week. And that relationship that was a friendship cleaved by two supposed Christians. One who obviously didn't believe what Jesus said. And according to Jesus, it's not my judgment. According to Jesus, they don't accept what you're saying because they don't accept what I'm saying. They don't know you because they've never known me. Ouch. Let me have you stand. Paul Halley, one of our elders here, is going to close our time in prayer. Thank you, Pastor Bill, for that message. Uh, dear Lord, uh, I just thank you that you are our God, our King, our Savior, Lord. Uh, we are so weak. We are so frail and uh, easily uh, pulled away from you, Lord. So in this day, Lord, I just pray that uh, we would be mindful of uh, Pastor Bill's message to be strong in you, Lord, to... Uh, be in your word and to apply what it says for our lives, Lord. 
And as we leave this place, Lord, I just pray that we would uh, have that joy of knowing our presence with you, Lord, in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.